So here we are, Romans chapter 15. Lord willing, we're going to cover those verses that Chase read through uh, verse 13. And as you'll notice, this is now our third message in a row in which we're dealing with the uh, topic of Christian liberty, but then the, the challenge that that can be in the fellowship of the church. It's interesting to think about that because we, we want liberty, we want freedom, and we have it in, in Christ. It is indeed uh, for liberty that Christ has set us free. But it does present its challenges in the Christian community because it means that when it comes to things that we have to do, um, about which there's no negotiation, like the, the moral law of God, um, the, those things are relatively few. But that means that there's a lot of choices in our lives that we're, we're free to make. There's a lot of matters that the Bible says are indifferent, matters that we deal with every day. And the reason why that's challenging is that as believers, we have different opinions. We reach different conclusions on these secondary matters. And um, the reality is that the church in Rome as well as the church in Corinth. We we read about that in chapters 8 through 10 in 1 Corinthians, Corinthians, but at least those two churches, probably the churches throughout the region in Galatia as well, their survival was threatened, not just from enemies from without. Those are easy to understand. Persecutions from without. But it turns out that there are also grave threats on the inside of the church as well, represented by by uh, disunity and disintegration. And that was seen in the church in Rome through their quarreling, their judging, their despising one another over these non-moral secondary issues. And it's easy to understand why that was a grave threat. To to quote Abraham Lincoln as he quoted Jesus, a house divided against itself cannot stand. So that's why the Apostle Paul wrote so much about this challenge of Christian liberty. All of chapter 14 and half of chapter 15, that's why Uh, We will have ended up spending three messages on the subject. And so what's the solution? What's the solution? What was the key to the church's survival? Was it talking each other uh, into holding our position or just steamrolling each other's conscience when it comes to matters of Christian liberty? And you already know the answer to that, no. What uh, Paul is going to lay before us today in these verses is the key to the church's 
survival. It's focus on Christ, our example and hope. And it'll, it'll be interesting, I trust, to see how uh, what Paul writes in this passage, uh, and I trust this passage is familiar to you, but it's really interesting to think about what Paul writes here in these verses in terms of Christian liberty and walking together in love in light of our Christian liberty. So that's what we're going to be doing today. And um, the first thing that Paul talks to us about in verses 1 through 7 is Christ our example. He, he appeals to Christ as our example. So notice again verse 1. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. And uh, just remember from chapter 14, uh, the, the strong are those believers who see that their faith in Christ sets them free from adherence to things like dietary regulations, holy days, and other external secondary issues. Those are the strong in Paul's thinking. And then the weak, on the other hand, are those believers whose consciences will not allow them to partake of certain indifferent things. This, this weak believer's conscience binds them in an area where Christ does not. But still, but still, as we saw in chapter 14, no believer should ever go against his conscience. But that's the strong believer and that's the weak believer. Um, the, the failings of the weak, in other translations, they're called the scruples of the weak. And we're supposed to bear with them. And the key to all of this is to not please ourselves. The, the key is to get the focus off of ourselves, not to try to win the argument, not to try to have our way, not to try to insist on our liberty, not to please ourselves, but um, to focus on our relationships with one another and to realize that those relationships that we have with each other in the church, as believers, as brothers and sisters in the Lord, those relationships are more important, way more important than these issues that we could easily argue about, that a lot of Christians do argue about. They are secondary. And we can think this way. We can we take the focus off of ourselves we can uh, not please ourselves but one another when we focus on the well-being of others and not just ourselves. And so in verse 2, Paul goes on to say, let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. Again, not to win an argument, not to get our way, not to justify ourselves, not to have a church that looks just like us. 
And after all, Paul says, this is what Jesus did for us. This is what Jesus did when he saved us. And that's what Paul goes on to say in verse 3. For Christ did not please himself. We're called to not please ourselves. Paul says Christ did not please himself. But as it is written, and now he's going to give us a quotation from the Old Testament, Psalm 69 and verse 9. And um, this is the beginning of a bunch of quotations from the Old Testament. This is one of five, to be precise. The reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Psalm 69 and verse 9. That's a really interesting verse for Paul to appeal to. Basically, what Paul is saying here is if Christ was willing to endure the insults and curses, the, the reproaches of his enemies as he hung on the cross, then surely believers like us can endure worshiping God together with other believers who have different opinions on secondary issues. That's what Paul is saying. This is not just a gospel appeal. This is not just a proof text that, oh, what Jesus did in saving us is in fulfillment of the Old Testament. It's very specific. He's getting us to not please ourselves, to think of our brother, the, the weak brother or sister, to not insist on our rights because of what Jesus did. And so think about Jesus hanging on the cross. And there Jesus was enduring the wrath of God in our place. He was being punished. He was being condemned, not for his sins, but for our sins. That was in the, the vertical plane, right, between him and God. He was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But on the horizontal plane, Jesus and other people, he was actually being insulted. He was being cursed. He was being maligned. He was being uh, falsely accused by people for whom he died in, in many cases. And Paul says that is our example in terms of preserving the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace in the church. We should be willing to bear with the failings or the scruples of the weak because of what Jesus did for us. It's kind of a remarkable reference. The reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. That's what the psalmist said to God. This is what Jesus said to God. And this is our example. Then he's going to go on and give us more Old Testament references. So I mentioned that Psalm 69 and verse 9, uh, whoops, in uh, verse 3 that we just saw, 
That's the first of five citations in this passage from the Old Testament. Well, taking a step back and thinking of where we've come in the book of Romans, there are 76 Old Testament references in the book of Romans. So we're looking at five of those 76 today. So now notice what Paul says in verse 4. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, like Psalm 69 and verse 9, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. That is a very important passage for Christians. That passage says, among other things, that the Old Testament, because that's what Paul's talking about, the, the Old Testament is what was written in former days. The Old Testament is what he just quoted from in verse 3, and it's what he's going to continue to quote from in the rest of the passages. Paul says that the Old Testament scriptures were written for our instruction for our instruction as believers the think about that the story of the old testament the story of um, the the formation and building and preservation and all of the different trials that israel went through but that story of god's dealings with old covenant Israel. That's part of our story. The, the story of God's dealings with the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that's our story. All of the instructions, all of the encouragements, all of the hope in the Old Testament, all of those things were written for us. And so, if you think about the overarching impact of the Old Testament, what do you think of? What's the first word that comes to your mind when you think about the Old Testament? You don't have to say it, but um, a lot of people are going to say things like law and threat and judgment and destruction. It's interesting that in Romans 15 and verse 4, Paul says the overarching impact of the Old Testament scriptures for believers is encouragement. Did you catch that? That through endurance and through the encouragement of the Old Testament scriptures, we might have hope. That is the theme of the Old Testament story as far as believers are concerned. Which means that if we want to have endurance and we want to have encouragement and we want to have hope, we have to get our noses in the Old Testament scriptures. That's what this implies. But you'll know that the Old Testament is also filled with lots of trials and tribulations. Job 
is in the Old Testament. Uh, the 40-year wandering in the wilderness is in the Old Testament. Uh, the book of Judges is in the Old Testament. Uh, the, the carrying away into captivity by um, the, the Assyrian Empire, by the Babylonian Empire, that's in the Old Testament. And, and yet, the overarching theme is a theme of endurance, encouragement, and hope, which, which reminds me of the hymn written by William Cooper, God Moves in a Mysterious Way, in 1774. In that hymn, and we, we sing it in a, a more contemporary setting from Sovereign Grace Music, God Moves in a Mysterious Way, in that hymn, William Cooper says, You fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. That's the Christian perspective on life because that's the Christian perspective on the Old Testament. But then Paul goes on after verse 4 to give this beautiful prayer of blessing, verses 5 and 6. May the God of endurance and encouragement. Isn't that great that that's how God reveals himself through the inspired pen of the Apostle Paul? He is the God of endurance. He's the God of encouragement. In verse 4, uh, we were encouraged to have endurance and to have encouragement from the scriptures. And that's because the scriptures are the word of the God who himself is the God of endurance and the God of encouragement. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another. You see, Paul is bringing the whole subject back to this original theme of unity in the church. We're, we're supposed to be in harmony with one another. And we've talked about that before in chapter 12. We're, uh, yeah, in verse 16, live in harmony with one another. Um, we, we heard that this morning. We hear that just about every Sunday morning when we have our singers up here, and they sing in different parts. Uh, soprano, alto, bass. What's the fourth one? Sopra Did I say soprano? Soprano. Tenor. Tenor. Thank you. Which, which is why they never invite me to <laughs> sing up here. Um, but it's, it's such a beautiful thing to hear, because if you hear each of those parts in isolation, they, they don't sound alike at all. But then you, you blend them together, and they make a beautiful harmony. And that's what the church is supposed to be like. The, the church is not designed by God 
to be a cookie cutter where we all look alike, we all sound alike, we all make exactly the same decisions on every single issue. That's not the church. That's a bunch of people gathering together and singing alto together. Instead, the, the church wants all of us to blend ourselves together in harmony with one another. And you'll notice that this is in accord with Christ Jesus. This is the will of Christ Jesus. And this, after all, is what Christ came into the world to accomplish, to bring us into a harmonious relationship with, with our God. And then in verse 6, what's, what's the purpose? What's the end goal? That together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And um, a harmony is a good illustration there as well because our singers, even though they're singing different parts, they do sing the same words. And the idea for us is not that uh, we have exactly the same opinions as each other in every single thing, but we do with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, we are in agreement when it comes to the big things. We believe, for example, that there is such a being as the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We, we agree with each other when it comes to the gospel. We agree with each other when it comes to the weightier matters of the law. And we agree with one another to walk in love and to bear with one another. That's the goal. And you'll notice that when that goal is achieved, God is glorified. God is glorified. When we truly love each other like this, when we truly imitate Christ, follow the example of Christ as Paul has described it, when, when we're willing to come to church together and lift up our voices with one accord and worship the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, God himself is glorified. It's a beautiful, meaningful, purposeful thing. This is God's objective for us. Therefore, verse 7, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. We've seen before that this, this welcoming is a picture of our salvation. Um, God didn't just pardon us as our judge and then turn his back on us, but God welcomes us into his embrace. Um, God is the father of the prodigal son who returns. We have been brought near to God by the blood of Jesus. God welcomes us through Christ and Paul says that we're supposed to welcome one another in the same way. Um, 
not to quarreling, not to divisions, not to opinions, but in Christ, according to the gospel, welcome one another. And um, I believe that our church is a good example of this. I mean, we could always grow, can't we? We, we can always do better. But I, I, I hear from a lot of people who visit us that we're, we're a welcoming church. And I do believe that we welcome one another as, as well. And that's not because, may not be, because we're trying to put on a happy face. We're, we're trying to put on an act. But this, this welcoming spirit is supposed to spring from our faith in our God who himself has welcomed us into his fellowship. And so that welcoming atmosphere is supposed to be the overflow of God's welcoming us in our salvation. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. So, Christ our example. Then in the second place, verses 8 through 13, Paul talks about Christ, the hope of Jews and Gentiles. Paul has brought up Jesus here as our example. Now he, he develops um, the, the power of Christ of accomplishing this goal of unity in the church as he focuses on Christ being the hope of Jews and Gentiles. So notice verse 8. For I tell you, notice how he says, for I tell you, so that connects what he's going to write with what he has already, what he's already written. They're, they're connected. This is the theological basis for what he's already instructed us. For I tell you that Christ became a servant. He came not to be served, but to serve, as Jesus himself said. A servant to the circumcised, those are the Jews, to show God's truthfulness. In other words, to come in fulfillment of all of the promises in the Old Testament to the Jews that God was going to send into the world his anointed one, the Messiah, that God was going to be merciful to his rebellious people, that God was going to make a new covenant with the house of Judah. God was going to keep his promises through the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, those promises to the Jews. But it, wasn't, it was never limited to the Jews. We, we saw that in the beginning of uh, the book of Romans. He came first to the Jews, but also to the Greeks. And that's what Paul mentions next in verse 8. In order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then verse 9, and in order that the Gentiles, the, the non-Jewish world, the nations, like us, might glorify God for his 
mercy. And so Paul is saying that God has always been on this mission of bringing about peace on earth, primarily peace between himself and sinners, initiated through the nation of Israel, through the Jews, but never meant to be limited to the Jews. This would, uh, this would encompass all of the peoples, all of the families of the earth, even as God had promised to the patriarch Abraham. And so, by the way, Abraham is our father, even though we're not Jews. We are children of Abraham. And now Paul is going to go on and cite these four Old Testament references. So the first one here is from 2 Samuel chapter 22 and verse 50, as well as Psalm 18 and verse 49. Therefore, verse 9, as it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. What's interesting about that is that was written by David, the great king of Israel. Psalm 18 and verse 49, where uh, you can read this, is a psalm of David. And so David, um, in, a, in a sense, was the, the hope of Israel, and it was going to be from David's own body that a son would come and, and sit on the throne of David forever and ever and ever. His, his government would know no end. And the Jews assumed that that meant that it was going to be through this descendant of David that they would wipe out the Gentiles. But instead, Paul says, it's actually through David that this unity within the kingdom of God is going to take place. And then here's a second citation in verse 10. And again, it is said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And you think, where, well, where, where's that written in the Old Testament? Maybe it's in one of the prophets, like the prophet Jeremiah or Isaiah, the, the prophets that do speak of the nations coming to know the God of Israel. Well, actually, that citation in verse 10 is a citation from Deuteronomy chapter 32 and verse 43, from the law. The, the, the law that the Jews took pride in, in terms of forming this wall of division between them and the non-Jewish world. Well, it's within the law itself that God gives this promise of future rejoicing of the non-Jewish nations, the Gentiles, and not separate from his people, but with his people. And that's not all in verse 11. Here's another citation. And again, Paul says, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. This is from Psalm 117 in verse 1. And so that first citation is from the writings, the second one from the law. 
Here's another one from the writings. The, the, four, the three traditional divisions of the Old Testament. Uh, the, raw, the law, the writings, and the law. I'm sorry, the law, the writings, and the prophets. And in Psalm 117 and verse 1, here's this, this um, command because of future fulfilled promises, this command from God to the Gentiles, the non-Jewish nations, to praise the Lord and let all the peoples extol him just like the Jews. And then even that's not all. Here's the fourth one in verse 12. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. So we've seen citations from the writings, from the law, now the prophets. Isaiah, to be exact. The root of of Jesse. And, we, and remember from the lineage of David, Jesse was David's father. And so he was a Jew. And this root of Jesse would rule the Gentiles not as a despot, not as an authoritarian, totalitarian dictator, but as a gracious king. And in him, this root Jesse, the Gentiles will hope. And again, just like the Jews. Jesus is the Messiah, not just of the Jews, but of the Gentiles as well. So Christ came to unite together both Jews and Gentiles into one harmonious worshiping body. And it's all based on what Christ has done. And therefore, Paul gives this prayer blessing. And another one, um, like he gave in verses 5 and 6, he's going to give us another prayer blessing in verse 13. Based on all of this, may the God of hope God doesn't just give us hope or call us to hope. He does. But he is the very God of hope. Just like earlier, we saw that he's the God of endurance and the God of encouragement. He's the God of hope. God has the whole world in his hands. He's, he's working all things according to the counsel of his will. And that will includes all of the great and precious promises that are all yes and amen in Christ. And so we can be sure, we can be confident that no matter what you might think about your life now, your future is a future of hope. Because of the God of hope. May the God of hope feel, fill you with all joy. Our joy comes from the encouragement of the scriptures. It comes from knowing the Christ of the Bible. It comes from being reconciled to God. 
That's the source of our joy, not by everybody in the church dotting every I and crossing every T the way that we do. And think about that. When people do things differently than you do, it and you're not captivated, and I'm not captivated by these spiritual realities that Paul's laying before us, doesn't it tend to irritate us? And it saps us of our joy. It saps us of our joy. And so the idea is, get our eyes off of what everybody else is doing. Exercise love towards people who have different opinions. Think about what God is doing in the world today. Think about what God has already done and what he will do and what he's promised. And that will bring joy. And also peace. Peace in believing. This is not peace that's just positive thinking. It's not just a rosy outlook on life. It's not wishful thinking. But it's peace in believing. It is Peace that is solidly rooted in the promises of God in his word. And remember that God cannot lie. And that brings great peace. Your future is absolutely secure in Christ. Then he goes on in this prayer blessing. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing to what purpose? So that by the power of the Holy Spirit, this is not all the fruit of the flesh. This is not what we do in and of ourselves by nature. We don't have this perspective in us. What we have in us is the tendency to bite and devour one another. To have each other for lunch. Not over for lunch, but literally for lunch. Because of our different opinions. We're gifted at quarreling. That's what we do by nature, but by the power of the Holy Spirit. You may abound in hope. What a glorious thread of hope. The God of hope, the hope and encouragement of the scriptures, and the Holy Spirit takes that and causes us to abound in hope. Paul puts it this way in 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 9, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. And so you put all these things together that Paul has been saying for a chapter and a half and you end up with the, um, the words, the slogan of St. Augustine and lots of people have repeated this down through the ages. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. 